the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, we find it much easier to sing and say that when you give. Teach us today through your word how to rejoice in the Lord always and in all circumstances in life to bless your name, especially for those of us even here this morning who are struggling with issues that challenge our faith and dependency on you. Lord, speak to us and help us by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Over recent months, events, both national and international, have brought little joy to the world. The financial meltdown has plunged almost every nation into the deepest recession in living memory, threatened the livelihoods of countless people. The swine flu epidemic was this week declared a pandemic, with victims in many parts of the world and warnings of a possible more virulent attack in the winter. At home, the MP's expenses scandal has provoked a loss of confidence in government and a crisis in Parliament. And then, in the midst of all this, an Air France plane disappeared off the coast of Brazil with the loss of all 228 people on board. Not surprisingly, many people are apprehensive, anxious, angry, alarmed. So in such a climate, are there any reasons to rejoice? Does anyone have any reason to rejoice? And what about Christians? Are they, are we any different? Is our verse for the year in Charlotte Chapel... The joy of the Lord is your strength. Just a slogan. Nothing more. Today, for an answer, let's turn to the book in the Bible from which our verse is drawn. We've called our series in Nehemiah, Restoring the Ruins. And we've seen how after an amazing 52-day project, the ruined walls of the city of Jerusalem have been restored. And today we discover as the restored wall is dedicated to God, the people of Israel have reason to rejoice. So much we read that the sound of their rejoicing could be heard from far away. So let's first of all read the account, which again comes back to a personal account as the text turns once more to the first person and Nehemiah tells his own story. It's Nehemiah 12. We're going to read verses 27 to 47. It's page 498. If you have a pew Bible, if you don't, just find one and turn to it with me, will you? Once more, we get a lot of names, which I'll work my way through, God willing. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, 
from Beth Gilgal and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, towards the Dungate. Hoshea and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachor, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Ma'ai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God, Ezra the scribe, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials as well as the priests, Eliakim, Masiah, Miniamin, Makaja, Elowenai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Marcia, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehonan, Malkaja, Elam, and Ezer. The choir sang under the direction of Jezrahiah. On that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the singers and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed to the daily daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. Well, that's God's word, and if you take out the names which are difficult to pronounce, it really was an amazing day and an amazing account. Creates vivid images in our minds of of what they did when they marched around the wall, playing musical instruments and doing, uh, making this fantastic celebration. However, what we shouldn't forget before we turn to that, which is the focus, and what Nehemiah doesn't forget, is what preceded the day. As with all such events, for example, uh, when the new Scottish Parliament building was opened by the Queen on October the 9th, 2004, you don't just turn upon the day. Someone has to make plans. And here in this story, notice first of all, don't overlook it, 
Nehemiah's account begins with careful preparations, verses 27 through to 30. As we saw in our previous study, Jerusalem was no ordinary city. It was the one city on earth where God had chosen to dwell. As the psalm with which we began the service reminds us, Jerusalem is the city of God. Look at the words again. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise in the city of our God. His holy mountain, it's beautiful in its loftiness. The joy of the whole earth, like the utmost heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. So the walls of this great city, this set-apart city to God, are important. One writer comments, they are God's gift for the protection and perpetuation of his name in all the earth. So Jerusalem is a holy city. A holy city needs holy walls set apart, dedicated to God, and this work of dedication must be done by holy people, those set apart by God for this specific purpose. So we see the dedication of the wall is carried out by God's chosen people. At the dedication, verse 27, of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived. They were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the background of the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and one specific tribe, Levi, was the tribe from which the priests were drawn. They were set apart for God's service. They were responsible for the spiritual life and worship of the people of Israel, especially that centered on Jerusalem and the temple. Some of them carried out priestly duties, offering sacrifices. Others were responsible for administration, upkeep of the temple. And as we'll see in these verses, others, descendants of a man called Asaph, were responsible for music and singing. Uh, and when the, tri- uh, when the tribes of Israel, the land was parceled out to different people in the book of, you can read in the book of Joshua, the people of Levi, they didn't get their own portion of land. Instead, they were scattered around the towns to bring the people to God and bring God to the people. But they had some pasture lands around about. And it appears that in this new situation, people returning from exile, that the Levites and the singers, the people of this tribe, had settled in surrounding farms. So when the worship was restored, the walls were dedicated, they brought these people in from where they were living and brought them in for this specific purpose. But before they carry out this sacred task, they must purify themselves and then the rest of the people and the gates and the walls. So the walls are dedicated by God's chosen people and also by God's holy people. Verse 30. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. The American pastor and Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe, in his little book, Be Determined, on Nehemiah, asks, what good are dedicated walls without dedicated people? Now, while we live under a different covenant, a new and better covenant through Christ, which is no longer tied to a land, a city, a temple, the principle remains the same. Let me remind you again, as I did in our last study, of what the Apostle Peter writes to Gentile Christians. Not from a Jewish background. He describes them as God's new covenant people. And if you're a Christian this morning, maybe a Gentile, most of us are, These words apply to you, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But in that same letter, Peter reminds them of God's unchanging call. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. In Nehemiah's day, the priests, we read, purified themselves ceremonially for this occasion. But the New Testament book of Hebrews reminds us that the cleansing that we have as Christians, that we must follow, is through what Christ did on his death. Hebrews 9 speaks of that new covenant cleansing. It says, the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly unclean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Now, it's important just to stop before we move on to the celebrations and to recognize that the joy the people experienced during the dedication was not just because the walls were finished. I mean, you can imagine the Persians having a big celebration when they built a temple to their God and finished it. No, it's a lot more than that. It was a celebration that they were God's chosen and holy people. If you see in verse 43, it says they were rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Now, pause for a moment in this first point and ask, do we know that kind of joy? The Bible calls it, in the New Testament, joy indescribable, full of the Holy Spirit. Would you describe yourself this morning as a joyful Christian? It's hard to tell from people's faces, by the way, but... Um, just doesn't mean that you have to have a big evangelical grin on your face all the time. But the joy the Bible speaks about is a deep inner joy that is not dependent on circumstances. It is the joy of sins forgiven. Now, if you're not a Christian here, you've never experienced that joy. But if you are a Christian, you can lose that joy. But when we sin, the first thing we lose is joy. And when we're restored to God... We, re we experience, as David prayed when he sinned grievously against God, committed adultery and murder, he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So can I suggest to you, as I've thought for myself this week, maybe some of us need a fresh joy, a fresh restoration of joy of sins forgiven. So you can go through a service like this, sing the songs, look reasonably happy, and go home, and it's just an outward ritual, like dedicating the walls. Kind of physical thing, but spiritual worship arises out of the joy of sins forgiven. And that's where we need to begin every time we come together, as Colin did, to confess our sin and seek God's forgiveness afresh. Maybe you say this morning, well, no, I've not got that joy because you don't know what I did. I'm suffering now and I deserve it. But your sin is not greater than God's grace, thankfully. God longs to restore to us as a congregation, as individuals, the joy of sins forgiven. So let's follow on then. Careful preparations are followed by joyful celebrations. And the celebrations, again, are very carefully planned. I don't think Nehemiah just stood up on the day and said, right, let's divide this into two. You go there, you go there. No, I think he thought it out. The songs were planned. Everything was planned. 
didn't mean it wasn't spiritual. Sometimes we think that the more disorganized it is, the more spiritual it is. Well, I don't think so. Uh, it's good to be spontaneous in praise and worship sometimes, but also to have some kind of structure to it. So notice there are two phases to the celebration. Walking on the wall, worshipping in the temple. First of all, walking on the wall, verses 31 to 38. Uh, you probably know that for many years, some of you may know, that critics uh, doubted the credibility of the book of Nehemiah and this story of the wall being rebuilt. And the reason was, they said, there is no evidence anywhere in Jerusalem of a wall like Nehemiah describes. In November 2007, uh, the Hebrew University archaeologist, Dr. Elat Mazar, revealed that she had uncovered a section of the wall located just outside the Dung Gate and the old city walls facing the Mount of Olives, dated by pottery to 2,500 years ago, the time of Nehemiah. And it reveals a very substantial wall, strong enough and wide enough for people to march along the top of it, as Nehemiah describes. Now, we can't be sure exactly uh, where they started, but almost certainly we think it was on the west side. If you go back to the beginning of Nehemiah, when he first arrived in Jerusalem, he did a recce of the whole city, and he started, I don't know how good these maps are, he started on the west side at the Valley Gate. So he divides the group into two. Group one, led by Ezra, marches south in an anticlockwise direction, via the Dung Gate, the Fountain Gate, then up to the Water Gate on the east. And then group two, which Nehemiah follows, doesn't lead, marches north in a clockwise direction, past the Tower of the Ovens, to the Broad Wall via the Gate of Ephraim, the Gate of Jushana, the Fish Gate, the Sheep Gate, as far as the Inspection Gate, the Gate of the Guard, to the northeast corner. Just trying to visualize what this must have looked and sounded like. And all these people marching along the walls, trumpets, harps, lyres, cymbals, making this fantastic noise and song of praise to God as they marched around the walls. And then finally, of course, they met up. It was a walk of witness characterized by thanksgiving to God. In fact, if you look at the, uh, the text here, um, it says in verse 31, I had the leads of Jerusalem go up on the top of the wall. I assigned two large choirs. It's actually only one word in Hebrew. It's a word that means thanksgiving. He says, I assign two thanksgivings. One to go one direction, one to go the other. And each section of the wall, I'm sure, would have had memories for the people as they marched around it. I just kind of visualized this, you know, walking along. And as you're walking along, sing God's praise, you nudge your friends and say, remember that bit where I stood my toe and nearly gave up? You remember how we struggled to get that gate up? That's my gate there. That's my bit of wall. That's what my family did. And together they're celebrating thanksgiving to God. Uh, last week, some of you know, I was away in the church where I previously served in Swindon, at Freshbrook Evangelical Church. Uh, and it brought back, I found a picture on the internet somewhere, I think. It brought back a lot of memories for me because when I went to the church, we had 40 members. And the, we, we decided, we got a piece of land miraculously. And the architect said, this is going to cost 750,000 pounds with 40 members. We wrote to every Christian trust we could think of, and they all wrote back, more or less politely, you're off your heads. But somehow we finished it, and it only cost 451,600 pounds. And I remember the figures and the budget. And going back to it, it was a real memory, and I was showing the congregation, I said, you probably don't remember this, but out the front of the church, just in front there, we, we put down asphalt one day. 
If you've ever laid asphalt, I never had until that day, and I've never done since, and I'm not going to do it again, but this lorry delivered this, this hot asphalt, and that, what, the reason I remember it is because it melted the soles of my shoes, my rubber. I could hardly move. I got nearly stuck, and then became a perpetual monument. And, <laughs> in front of the church. But, you know, you know, when it was all finished, we had this fantastic celebration, and, and we put a big verse at the back, behind the pulpit, and it was Psalm 118, verse 23. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the people didn't say, wow, what a great church, or he must be some pastor. No, they said, the Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. Now, we don't know which psalms they, they sang as they marched around the walls, but I'm pretty sure... When we get to glory, these are the kind of things we can check out because we've got an eternity to do it. But, you know, Nehemiah, just tell us again, let's settle this. Which psalms did you sing when he marched around the walls? But I'm pretty sure they sang Psalm 48. You know how Psalm 48 finishes? Walk about Zion. Go round her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. So the two thanksgivings march around the walls, singing, praising God, musical instruments. And then at the far side, they come together on the east side and they meet up and merge together and they descend down into the city for the second part of the celebration. Worshipping in the temple. Uh, Derek Kinn, a great Old Testament scholar who passed away recently, says, the walls were the circumference, not the focal point of the celebration. The focal point was the temple, the place where God had chosen to dwell with his people. Psalm 48 again. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Their worship had two components. Praise with singing and musical instruments. Verse 40, the two choirs that gave thanks took their place in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests with their trumpets. The choirs sang in the direction of Jezrahiah. They're actually... Did a bit of research this week. There are actually 22 different musical instruments in the Old Testament that were used for praising God. Here we have trumpets, cymbals, harps, and lyres. But while their joy may have been spontaneous, as I said before, the praise was not unscripted. They drew on this rich heritage from the time of this man Asaph, who was the author of some of the Psalms, if you read the uh, inscription at the top of them. Uh, Kidner again comments, worship was too important to be left unplanned. And along with praise went sacrifice. On that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. I don't think it means that the women and children didn't normally rejoice. I think just making the point that it was everybody joined in to praise God and to thank him. And the result was not, not only was there walk a walk of witness... But so was their worship. See, worship and witness. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. I hope that guy Tobiah heard it. You know the one who said when they started building, look at that wall, even if a fox climbed up, it'd knock it over. And here's a whole army of people marching along the walls. And now what they had seen, they hear. The sound of rejoicing in the temple. I wonder what sort of witness we are to those outside the church. I remember speaking to our neighbors in the church office around the corner, uh, some guys who were in the flat at that time above. And uh, I said, you know, I met them, I said, I'm the minister of church. Oh, yeah, we hear you on Sunday mornings when we're in bed, singing your hymns. 
They couldn't believe the noise, the volume. Sometimes wonder whether it ought to be a bit more audible outside. Again, I was reading the, the anniversary program uh, for the 200th anniversary. If you read the piece by Derek Murray, he describes how his father and his family in Charlotte Chapel, they used to march along the streets into Charlotte Chapel before the services. Maybe this is an idea for the new senior pastor. But, um, and he said, and some of them were the leading citizens of Edinburgh. You imagine, you know, all you people marching along the street, singing praises to God and marching into Charlotte Chapel. Well, I don't know. Make a point about that. But do people recognize our joy as a church? Is that what characterizes when they come in here? Or do they say, oh, they're a miserable lot, those. Hmm. Frederick Nietzsche, 19th century philosopher, the one who said, God is dead, repudiated Christianity. He said once, if the Christians expect me to believe in their Redeemer, they've got to look a lot more redeemed. Now we bring to God no animal sacrifices because of the sacrifice of Jesus, but we do bring a sacrifice. We bring a sacrifice of praise. The writer of the Hebrews says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. As we go out from it, it's not just a verbal, you know, the audible singing. It's the joy within our hearts that is reflected to those outside. Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now, notice finally and briefly, which we can also overlook, what follows the joyful celebrations, which again, like the careful preparations, as I say, we can overlook. Last few verses, grateful contributions. We quote again, and if you want a good, succinct, really good commentary, read anything by Derek Kidner, but the commentary, IVP commentary on Nehemiah, he says, it is one thing to shout on a great occasion, but another to offer the sacrifice of praise continually and to make realistic provision for the church's needs. We read at that time, which is literally in Hebrew, on that day, at this point in the story, the people of Israel organized regular giving as the Lord had commanded, appointing people to be in charge, giving contributions for those serving God. Verse 45, they performed the service of their God, so their needs were met. They set aside these portions so that all the needs were met for the ongoing work of God. And, and the key is, is that verse there where it says they did this gratefully, not grudgingly, because they were pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They were pleased with those who were serving God on their behalf. Writing to the Christians in Corinth, the Apostle Paul holds up the churches in Macedonia as an extending example of generous giving. That's what he writes in 2 Corinthians 8. Out of the most severe trial, notice their overflowing joy and extreme poverty. You know how many people who overflow with joy are extremely poor? Well, welled up into rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Here's a church that was a treasurer's delight. Didn't have to stand up and plead for money. People collared him and said, please, please, let us give. I've been a pastor for a long time, and I've not met many people who plead to give. 
I've met many people who give sacrificially behind the scenes, and God bless those who do that. And I wonder if that's true of us. Are we marked as people will come to our AGM and talk about our budget? Do we sort of say, oh, I don't think we can afford that. It's credit crunch time. Do we give gratefully or grudgingly? We haven't got enough money. These people did it out of extreme poverty. You see, if the work of Christ is to be maintained, let alone expanded, then such grateful contributions, regular contributions are needed. Uh, Yet the trend in churches and in missions, and I'm sure Bill will agree with me, is people love to give spontaneously to big projects. Something happens, and we should do that. But God's people gave tithes and offerings. Whatever you think about tithing, it's giving to the work of the Lord not just spontaneously, but regularly, consistently. To people like Peter and Katie who are going out to serve the Lord for who knows how many years. It's giving monthly, regularly, systematically to the work of God in this place. If you look in the bulletin, it gives our giving for the last three months, I think it is. And we're down on our general giving. Our mission giving is a bit up. Let's maintain that with regular giving to the Lord's work. Well, it's a wonderful story. Let me conclude where we began and ask the question I began with. Is our verse for the year, Charlotte Chapel, the joy of the Lord is your strength, is it just a slogan or nothing more? You see, if our strength, our security, that's what the word means, if our security is in the stock market, then we'll be very sad if it crashes. If our strength is in our health, then we'd be pretty sad if we get swine flu or fall ill. If our strength is in our leaders, then we'd be pretty sad when they let us down and disappoint us. And if our strength is in our safety, then we'll be sad if we encounter an accident. All these things can and do happen. But if our strength, our security, is in the Lord, and what he has done for us, what he will do for us, which cannot be shaken by stock market crashes, epidemics, disappointments with other people, or accidents, then we, and we alone, can experience and affirm that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We have reason to rejoice. So let's pray and ask God to help us to do that.